Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Uh, now, before I introduce my guests this week, uh, can I just remind you, please do subscribe, won't you? Uh, people are subscribing in there, thousands in fact, over the past few months, and we want to keep it up. So uh, please do, you just simply go to the subscribe button, and next door to that there is the notifications button, which you also press. That means you get notification of each one of our programs as they come up. Now, I'm delighted that my guest today is one of America's preeminent commentators and historians. Professor Victor Davis Hanson is a classical historian. He has written numerous books and also has columns in numerous American newspapers. He is a senior fellow of the Hoover Institute and back in 2007 he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Bush. His most recent book was called The Case for Trump. Uh, thank you very, very much for joining us, Victor. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Um, can I start actually by asking you uh, on, the, on the subject of, uh, of President Trump, um, you recently wrote a piece, uh, I think it was called The Lethal Wages of Trump Madness. And um, I think this yeah. was referring perhaps, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, to the, to the fact that basically a sheer uh, hatred of President Trump had blinded uh, people and journalists to possibly damaging things, such as we are hearing at the moment with the uh, new theory of the Wuhan uh, Virology um, uh, Institute and, the, and how, in fact, this whole thing might have started. Could you explain, actually, your point there? Yeah. Well, in general, any time people reject inductive thinking and empiricism and become faith-based and deductive, they're going to be in trouble. Right. And every consensual society has leaders that alienate people and people deductively from the opposite ideological spectrum reject it. But Donald Trump was new, partly because of his outsider status, never had held political or military rank or office, and partly because he pushed back against the bipartisan Washington-New York nexus of media politics. So people thought that it was justified to oppose everything he said, regardless of the evidence on which he based it, or maybe his instinct or cunning that led him to a conclusion. And that meant that many of the things that he advocated and accomplished were beneficial. So for example, we had record low minority unemployment. We had record low, uh, almost peacetime unemployment. We had record gas and oil production. I could go on, but you get the impression. Okay, we had a secure border. We had some calm in the Middle East. But once he was out, uh, once the opposition saw that empirically he was gaining strength, they decided to reject it. And when they rejected him, his family, his name, his policies, they did a lot of damage to things that were beneficial to the country, indeed the world at large. And you mentioned the Wuhan virus. If you and I were talking nine months ago, and you said to me, the Wuhan virus, and you intimated to me that you had some skepticism that either a pangolin or a bat did not jump the virus, uh, 
so to speak, into the human community, you would probably be deplatformed on Facebook or YouTube and myself included, not to mention Donald Trump. And yet we know empirically that if you look at all of the evidence, the likelihood, the proximity of the lab, the people who were looking in the lab, the people who got sick, the unique viral sequence that has no predecessor in the animal kingdom is very likely it came. But they rejected that largely because of Donald Trump. Same thing with, we didn't have a lot of pharmaceuticals uh, to combat COVID. There were some high priced antivirals, there were other things, uh, plasma therapy. And one of them that doctors empirically in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, in India, in Latin America found was helpful was hydroxychloroquine. Not a cure, but cheap, relatively safe, a UN essential drug. And because Donald Trump said, A, that he thought it could help, or he might take it himself, then that was demonized. And that led to a lot of people. And now we know from a, a study this week in New Jersey, a doctor who did a double blind study that it has efficacy if used and calibrated to body rate at the right time of intervention, medical intervention. I'll just conclude with them one other, I could go on, but we were told for three years that Donald Trump, in the words of James Clapper, the director of national intelligence under the Obama administration, was a Putin asset, an asset. The walls were closing in, a bombshell uh, revelation every day on cable news that his son was going to be indicted, that he had uh, communicated through a ping in his bank with a with a Russian bank, all of these conspiracy theories. And it was based on one document that started it, Christopher Steele, who had not been to Russia in 30 years. He was not really known in the intelligence committee, uh, community as a brilliant espionage asset to anybody, but was known to have a pathological hatred to Donald Trump. At least he developed it rather late in life. And out of that dossier, and anybody who read that dossier empirically could see that it was psychodramatic from the beginning. There is no Russian consulate in Miami. Uh, all of his reference points to people and places in the Russia, Russia were wrong. And now we know that it was, I, I shouldn't say now we know that it was based on fabrication and fantasy by his own admission to a British court when he said that he had no evidence and no sources to back up his allegations. It was proven uh, bogus. But nevertheless, that jump started 22 million, uh, 22 months and $40 million in investigation. It was a complete hoax. Yeah. And why did people buy into it? Because Donald Trump was involved. Yes. If just on this point of the actual start of the pandemic, which of course, you know, again, as you say there, it, would, it was absolutely dismissed out of court because uh, Trump had actually suggested it. Um, now that things are sort of coming to light, and obviously there's this figure, Dr. Fauci, who you know won't be necessarily known to huge numbers of people here in Britain, but your, uh, your chief medical government um, figure, is he not? Uh, it's sort of coming to light that in fact maybe there was just, you know, they weren't being straight with people. Isn't that right? Yes. Well, one of the things tangential to what you're asking me is one of the things that we have discovered is that our experts throughout this crisis, whether it's your uh, modeler or projectionist, Neil Ferguson, or whether it's yeah. our Dr. Fauci, yeah. or whether it's our shared Dr. Dasnick, 
whoever it is in the Anglo-American communities, we put great faith in. And we put great faith in for what? For the actual wisdom of their assessments? Not necessarily. We put wisdom in their credentials and the institutions which they were affiliated, which we considered prestigious and elite. And what have we learned? We've learned that Dr. Fauci was not just contradictory and paradoxical when he said, there's no real danger this virus can come to the United States. We don't know where it came from, but it's not going to come out of the Wuhan lab. That China is a partner, it's nothing, it's not a, it's not an entity to be suspicious of. That you don't wear masks, that would be silly, but you do wear masks, but you don't wear masks alone, you wear two masks. That herd immunity is 60%, no, it's 70%, no, it's 80%, no, it's 90%. And through all of these iterations, never did he say, we are human, not gods, and we're empirical, and we have to change things. And when I change things, I have to go back and explain why I was wrong. And said, he said the following. It was basically Plato's noble lie. He said, I had to deceive you about masks so you wouldn't run out and all buy them and deprive the medical community of them. I had to deprive you of knowledge about herd immunity so you would be afraid and get vaccination. Otherwise, you might not be vaccinated if you saw that we had 60 or 70% herd immunity. And then lurking behind this whole facade is something that people had whispered, but were condemned as being conspiracy theorists that he himself had channeled money to Ms. Dr. Dasnick in the ECHO Health Alliance to pursue gain of function research and engineering viruses. A methodology that many in the United States and your country had said was dangerous and had yet not yet offered any tangible benefit through that, or at least in a cost benefit analysis had not proved it was uh, useful. And uh, that money then was circulated back into the Wuhan lab to subsidize research in coronavirus gain of function. Okay, that had been known in February. People had whispered about it of last year, not this year, but it was suppressed. Now in the Fauci troll, we see that he was communicating all the time throughout the medical community to make sure that everybody was on board that gain of function was a legitimate tool of research and it had nothing to do with uh, the origins and birth and transmissibility of the COVID-19 virus. And more importantly, the Chinese could be believed in their denials that agreed with Fauci. And then we went so far that probably the most prestigious medical journal in the world, Your Lancet, came out with 27 doctors who swore that this was a naturally occurring virus and that all of the objections could be explained scientifically, except we learned that some of them were either connected to Dr. Uh, Dasnick or uh, Echo Health Alliance, or in fact, uh, had contacts with Dr. Fauci. And that was, and some of them, in fact, a few have been brave enough now to withdraw their allegiance on that letter. But what I'm getting at is whether it's the most prestigious medical publication, the Journal of American Medical Association has the same problem, or whether it's the head of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Disease, or whether it's Neil, we don't trust these people anymore. And that's, and 
And we should trust these people because we're not anti-enlightenment pre-modern peoples. Mm. We, we, we have this faith in a empirical, meritocratic, university-trained culture that produces these very bright men and women. And then we entrust them with enormous powers of science and politics, wealth, to make life better for us. But we do not, they, didn't not, they did not perform well in their hour of need. Has there been any kind of sense of uh, an advantage for uh, Donald Trump in this now, Victor? I mean, in the sense that, you know, how people said, well, actually, maybe he had a point, maybe he made the right call early on. Is that is that naive of me to think that could even happen? That he's, uh, I didn't quite hear the, la the last that, part, that, that he has a viable political career still. Yes, I mean, do, do, do you think that do you think that people uh, would give credit where credit is due? Is what I'm saying, or is that just naive yes. of me to think that? No, Donald Trump, in a very ironic fashion, has been a beneficiary of the one thing that polarized people: his incessant tweets and social media communications and declarations. And once he was quite unfairly banned. He lost all avenues of immediate, mm. off-the-cuff, extemporaneous commentary, and that actually has helped him. So now he sits back as a kingmaker in King at Margot, in Florida, at his compound. And whether we like it or not, the Trump agenda is now the Republican agenda, and apostates from that agenda have no political support. So. If you're Nikki Haley and you want to deviate, you're free to do it, but you're going to be met with popular opposition. I see. If you're DeSantis or Tom Cotton or Mike Pompeo, whatever candidate you are, you've got to make a hajira pilgrimage to Florida and you have to cut a deal with Donald Trump. And by that, I mean, you don't criticize him personally. Right. And then you adopt his agenda because his agenda was basically 80 percent of the Republican traditional agenda with four or five very important tweaks. You were going to get tough and be realistic with China. You're going to secure your border and have legal only immigration. You were not going to write off the industrial Middle West of the United States. You were going to not have optional interventions in the Middle East that didn't work out in the cost benefit analysis. And you were going to push back, often crudely and crassly, against the left, its, its academia, Silicon Valley, the traditional media, social media, Wall Street, the corporate boardroom, professional athletes and sports. Multifaceted pushback in a way that Mitt Romney and John McCain and traditional Republicans played by the Marcus of Queensbury rules and just wouldn't do it. Mm. And so everybody accepts that now. But the problem is Donald Trump will be 78. And he keeps saying that I'm not, a, I won't be a 78 in the way that Joe Biden is 78. But he's Donald Trump. And so I think people are coming to the conclusion, some of them, that he's sort of the traditional John Ford Western hero that we see in a John Wayne movie, mm. who the searchers or Man Who Shot Liberty Valance or Shane, another movie, in which the townspeople call in the outsider who has a, a unique set of methodological skills to solve the problem which they don't want to get their hands dirty. And once he starts to succeed, they have the margin of error 
or they are permitted then to question, second doubt how they ever employed somebody like this. You see it yourself in your own uh, military history, as do we with, in our case, a George Patton, a Curtis LeMay, and yours, maybe a Bomber Harris in World War II. How dare we ever befoul ourselves with Bomber Harris? But you know what? If we were in 1942 and England didn't have very many options, then maybe Bomber Harris had a point. Exactly. And so yes. that's, that's the kind of figure Donald Trump is right now, I think. And people are debating whether they could win that necessary 5%. Donald Trump can win 45% of the vote right now against any Democrat. But can he win 51%? And people don't know that yet. But things have changed radically since January 21st because of this woke critical race theory, uh, revolutionary Biden regime. It's really every day it's getting people more and more irate. Is, is, do you think it's sort of been a, a kind of reaffirmation by the old elite, hasn't it really? I mean, when I say the old elite, I mean the pre-Trump elite. I mean, he was a disruptor a street fighter who came in. But these people, it's almost like they've taken back with a vengeance, haven't they? Yes, they're trying to, but they have not performed well. And what do I mean by that? Donald Trump did something very unusual in the Middle East. He used a unilateral approach. He said, we're not going to intervene in Iraq or Afghanistan, but you know what? If we have to take out Soleimani, we'll take him out and worry about the consequences later. We're not going to get out of the Iran deal. We're going to have the Abrams Accord. We're going to have unilateral bi and bilateral relationships with Israel and the Arab communities. We're not going to let the Palestinians have veto power over 500 million Arabs in the Middle East on questions of foreign policy. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend, which was the basis of the Abrams Accord, the common enemy Iran. And we had calm. The elites were furious. They said, we have to have multi-party talk. We have to bring the Palestinians back. We have to give them $700 million, American must. Mm. And guess what? As soon as the Palestinians figured that out, and as soon as Iran figured out the sanctions were going to be lifted, then what happened? And the same thing is true now with the revelations that we, you and I discussed about COVID. The same thing is true about the border. We had a border where finally, after all the opposition from the U.S. military echelon, from the courts, from the left, with all of the stays and injunctions, Donald Trump built 500 miles of new wall. He said that you were not a refugee just because you crossed the border illegally. He deported people. He was willing to discuss amnesties for those who had not been back to Mexico since childhood, and we had no illegal immigration. The elites came in and said, this is racist. Children are in cages. We can't go, and guess what happened? More children are in cages. The border's a mess. So this bipartisan uh, Washington, New York, Council on Foreign Relations, Brookings Institute, World Bank, International Economic Forum, Davos, all of those people have not performed well in the last year and a half. And so whether it's Brexit in your country or whether it's uh, Make America Great in my country or what we're seeing in Europe, I think there's a lot of people that say at the end, of all of this conundrum, you're left with an age-old wisdom that every constitutional state in the West has to trust the people, albeit with checks and balances and a constitutional system of national sovereignty with clearly defined 
borders and a unique custom and tradition and a reverence for its history. And the alternative is something like not the British parliamentary tradition or the American founders, but something right out of the nightmare of 1793 in France. Yes. And that's what this this woke revolution is. It's, it's Robespierre and the reign of terror. It does feel right down even to the, you know, the changing of names and the pulling down of statues. It has that feel about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, it does. And I would say just saying that very quickly that where your country and our country went through the 60s, that was a sloppy revolution. It was a long hair, wire rim glasses, anti-Vietnam, smoke dope, hangout, free love. And it was, it was the outsiders. They marched on the Pentagon. They weren't inside the Pentagon. They, they lectured us about 1984. They weren't 1984. They created a free speech area. They weren't the administrators saying there's no going to be no more free speech. This time, the grandchildren of that failed revolution of the 60s are the establishment. Yes. They run the Pentagon. They run the deep state. They run professional sports. And they are as they're not stone dope smokers. They're stone sober uh, people that look at downloads and page views and they're very sophisticated and it's a top-down narrow group of elites it's not a grassroots movement that's calling for this change that we're talking about um they're very sophisticated but they don't really believe in anything would you say no they don't well they do they believe in power and they believe that any means necessary or justified to obtain it and when you say that they don't believe in anything, I think what you might be inferring to is if Black Lives really was a Marxist organization, which its three uh, creators and architects said they were, then Phyllis Coolers would not be a real estate investor who just bought a, ho a home near Malibu in Topeka Canyon. If they were really, really, really mm -hmm. the revolutionaries they say, then Mark Zuckerberg would not be building a 57,000 foot home in Hawaii. If they were really, really, really woke uh, architects of change, then you wouldn't have Meghan Markle from a $14 million uh, Montecito estate talking to Oprah and her $90 million estate as they swap stories about all of the psychodramatic impressions they suffered. Mm -hmm. So no, I don't think we take them seriously. They're, they want power, influence, and attention from the top down on the premise that none of their bromides will ever apply to themselves. Yeah. They'll jet in, they're going to jet into Davos and condemn carbon emissions. They're going to hate race, but live in white enclaves. They're going to tell you that the te that uh, homeschooling and charter schools are uh, terrible for children as their own children are in private uh, academies. So they're a very strange group. They remind me of the medieval clarity in some way. I think you, you actually, I, you said something in an interview recently, which I thought put it very well, Victor, um, which is, is relevant here. You said that uh, they, the elites are abstractly moral, but concretely immoral. And I think, um, you know, that in, in yeah. the poses that they took, but these were quite different and distinct from their virtual, their, their actual living conditions, for example. Yeah, and the question that I have, and maybe you have an answer, 
I'm not sure how they square that circle. I don't know how Bill Gates lectures us and lectures us and lectures us from this huge compound in Seattle, or how when you look at that aerial picture of the glo of the Davos Airport and mm. see the, the multi-million dollar private jets, or you see where the Obamas live in Martha's Vineyard and they venture out every once in a while for some kind of declaration of morality and fairness and uh, equity. But I think it has a psychological condition that, uh, and it is, it is medieval, that if a person feels they're sinning and they're not incapable of stopping that sin, then there's a church there that can offer an indulgence or can prescribe penance so they can keep on sinning. And so just as the medieval moneylender went to the local church and said, you know what, I, I've been charging 20% interest. And they said, well, if you buy a block on the dome of St. Peter's new cathedral, then maybe we can write you a way to get into purgatory and on your way to heaven. Well, that's what they do, I think. I think psychologically, they give you these vast uh, proclamations, and then it excuses the way they lose. I'm always amazed in our country that Meghan Markle and your prince are always giving us these moral guidelines. And yet when we look at how they live and how they dress, and uh, there's no connection at all. Yes. And the same thing is true of Oprah, and the same thing is true of LeBron James, and the same thing is true of uh, Nancy Pelosi, right in, the right in the middle of the COVID sacrifice period where we were told that you're not going to be able to do this and this and this. She has a interview where she shows her $20,000 designer Italian refrigerators and then she has this handmade ice cream, hand-packed ice cream at $20 a pint and showing us how wonderful it is and how you shouldn't worry about lockdowns. Totally oblivious. Yeah. So sometimes they're just so insular and arrogant uh, and hothouse plans and sometimes I think it's a psychological condition that it justifies their indulgence by their uh, abstract morality. Do you, you said that the position in, in America, in the country, had changed quite a lot since January. Um, do, you, do you think that people, you say that the population doesn't like these people, but is it more serious or can it become more serious than that in the sense that they actually want to vote them out that, or that they want to get rid of them? Well, the reason I mentioned the earlier revolutionary movement in the 60s and compared it with this one is this is a much narrower base, but it has all the levers of influence. And so by that, if you and I do not like what's going on and we want to search on Google some information that would be useful to us, that Google search, the order in which things appear, will be altered by Google engineers somewhere so that progressive stories will be yeah. uh, cataloged more accessible than conservative or traditional stories. If I want to say something on Twitter or I want to post on Facebook, that will be canceled more likely if I criticize these people and their ideas. If I look toward, if I'm a military officer and I don't like the woke reindoctrination, I will be told privately, you're not going to be promoted if you sound off again like this. If you say women can't meet 
uh, the same physical standards in combat units as men, you will not get promoted. If you say to the corporate boardroom, Coca-Cola or Delta or Disney, I think we've got to really insist on merit because we're in a very competitive business. They will say, if you say that again, you're going to be fired because we're going to lose an advertiser. So if you're a NBA star and you say, you know what, I'm really worried about the infiltration of China and we have, they're going to be, you're going to be fired or told to shut up. If you're in Hollywood and you say, you know, the Chinese are telling us that they don't want dark skinned actors and we're woke. So we've really got on low. They're going to say, you know what, attack the United States for being racist, but not China. So they control almost every, from the corporate boardroom, as I said, to Silicon Valley, to the university. I work at a university and I can tell you, and I had a British con uh, colleague at the Hoover Institution, Neil Ferguson and yep. Scott Atlas, that and all three of us were brought up in, uh, for these types of thought crimes in front of the Stanford Faculty Senate. And the accusers were not so-called ignorant people. They were ignorant, but they all had letters after their name, PhD, MD, and they were right out of the Inquisition. Did you or did you not say something on Tucker Carlson's Fox show? Did you or did you not in a private email make fun of a student? Did you or did you not say that masks were not as uh, useful as Dr. Fauci said? And that was the type of thing. So yes, we're tired of that, but when this cabal has control of all the levers of influence and power and communications, and that's why they're also vulnerable. That's how Donald Trump was able to sneak in in 2016, or in your case, Brexit, mm. because of the arrogance that accrued. They said, well, we run everything. There's not enough rubes out there. Because they, And then when they, they struck back, now they're warned. And I think it's going to be much more difficult because they, they don't underestimate the grassroots majority that doesn't like them anymore. No, I think that's right. One thing that Brexit showed here as well was that uh, if ever ordinary people, uh, if ever they had any doubt about what the elites thought of them, that was completely gone after Brexit. They now know exactly what the elites think of them. Um, and it's, you know, they, they have no illusions anymore, I would say. Um, Vicky, you, you mentioned there about Hollywood. You mentioned the, the sports and Hollywood. Um, but this is quite interesting because I, I heard you speaking um, in another uh, environment. And you talked about the fact that more and more people are taking, you know, are having, as you put it, a monastery of the mind, i.e. that they are no longer using or following these things. And I certainly see it in myself, you know, that in I no longer watch the news, I no longer want to see films, I no longer want to watch award ceremonies. Um, you know, this is quite a thing, isn't it? I mean, I, do you have that in your, in your own life? Do you actually find that you no longer partake in things you absolutely yes. would have done? I think we do. And I, I'm very careful not to project my own experiences or the people that I admire and, and, and communicate and socialize with as representative of the entire country. So instead, I look at data. Right. And if you look at the viewership of the national basketball, it's 
League, it's plummeted. The National Football League, down. The Disney Corporation, down. If you look at when Coca-Cola and Delta weighed in on the idea that just presenting an, a driver's license to vote was somehow racist, and people got angry and started to boycott them immediately. Immediately now they have withdrawn that. If you look at the ratings for CNN, it's crashed. If you look at uh, the participate, the audience uh, participation or viewing of a new Hollywood movie compared to 15 or 20 years ago, down. Mm. So a lot of people, in uh, one of the reactions they've had is they retreat to this monastery of the mind. They just say, you know what? And, and it's, it's almost now instinctual. They don't even think about it. They just think, huh, I don't go to the movies anymore. <laughs> I would never turn on and I have no idea who LeBron James is anymore. I don't watch the NFL. I would. I haven't watched the Super Bowl halftime in years, and they will tell you. I don't watch network TV news. I would never watch it. Uh, and that's just the entertainment side. Yeah. And now they're starting to say, do I really have to have my kid prep, 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 get straight A's, go to prep school, take the SAT, take the ACT to go to Harvard, Stanford, Yale? No, I don't, because they've, they've thrown out the SAT. They've thrown out the ACT. They are not using merit anymore. They're using strictly, overtly racial categorizations, and they have a new doctrine of overrepresentation, mm -hmm. not demographic parity, where they pick uh, people of color, for example, in numbers beyond their as repertory action for sins of the 18th and 19th centuries. So what the result is, people say, you know what? I don't, if spending all that money and all that time gets you going to a public university or another place, so what? I'll go do it. I, so the, the whole glitter of our higher educational system is, is gone. And when people look at, and I'm just looking at my institution, and uh, just in the last five years, Stanford University, $60 million that it did not report from Chinese communist government affiliated companies and contributions. Uh, Renowned neurological uh, researcher, professor from China, guess what, found to be an attache of the Chinese military. Admission scandal, sports uh, coaches at Stanford selling admissions to wealthy people on the side and not telling them, the university, that their, uh, their so-called premier blue chip athletes had never rode a boat in their life or were not fencers after all. So. All of these scandals keep happening in these, these, these universities. And once they got, get away from merit, mm. I, I think that they're, they're facing a real existential crisis because they are letting in this year a lot of, you know, uh, earnest young people who don't have the skills that would have been required at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of our blue chip. And the left wing faculty will have to deal with that. Yeah. And I can tell you as a faculty member for 30 years, that will be very evident the first two weeks of class. And then they're going to have an existential decision to make. Are they woke and they contextualize student work and say that merit is a white construct? Or are they going to try to reestablish uh, standards and traditional methods of assessment? And then they're going to be in big trouble. Which way? So would they've you created a monster. 
I, I don't know which way it's going. To, I think privately, what I'm seeing is privately, it's almost as if we're adopting in the West, Western Europe, in the United States, we're adopting the culture of 1950s in Eastern Europe, mm. where there's a dialogue, there's a conversation, there's a vocabulary among left and liberal and old style Democrats that suppress, but the fact that it suppressed intensifies it. Yet nobody, if anybody were to break ranks and say that, nobody would come to their aid. Mm, mm, but they all know what's going on. Mm. So when people, for example, as I referenced before, when the Stanford faculty went after three of us at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, I got a lot of emails from what I would call left-wing people. This is terrible. This is McCarthyite. This reminds me of the Spanish Inquisition. These, your accuser was a member of Antifa himself. Your accuser sent protesters out and disrupted traffic on the San Mateo Bridge. This person hasn't written a book in 15 years. This person is tweeted, but not one of them came forward. But they were seething because they thought, I'm next, or my friend will be next. Mm. So that's very unfortunate because it's kind of a Orwellian 1984 suppression and fear and yet, and I don't know whether, I don't have an answer to it. I don't know whether it's gonna break out in spontaneous uh, rejection. And, and this thing is like the, the, the proverbial naked emperor and somebody's gonna say, he doesn't have any clothes on. Mm. He's not rogue mm. and it'll all dissipate or whether we'll continue to be hellots and just accept it. I think if enough of us speak out, it'll shatter. Yeah. On that broader point, actually, I think you, you might have slightly answered, but on that broader point of not really looking at the news, not really seeing it's any worth in going to higher education, uh, all of these things, all of the things that we might once have done as a matter of course in our type of society, um, where, where does this take us? You know, where do those people who no longer feel part who were very much part of it, actually, before, but now feel utterly alienated. Where do they go? What happens to them? It's going to be a very interesting question because they're going to be centers of refuge and resistance. Mm. Uh, in the United States, for example, there is a traditional, wonderful college called Hillsdale College. It takes no government money. It has a classical curriculum. It has no course in its curriculum with the hyphen studies, no peace studies, ethnic studies, women's studies, gay. It's just traditional history, math, science, literature, and it's booming. It's, it, it's enrollments are growing. It's entirely meritocratic. So there are going to be places that people turn to, neighborhoods. In California, to give you a demographic example, the upper middle class is leaving so much so that we're losing three congressional districts based on the new census. And where are they going? They're going to Florida, they're going to Texas, they're going to Idaho, they're going to Utah. Not because they're white, but because they're all different ethnic backgrounds who think, why should I pay the highest taxes in the country, get the worst services, and then be blamed as some type of parasite when the people who are running California and, and $6 trillion of market capitalization, Silicon Valley, are never subject to the consequences of their own ideology. Yeah. They're saying to us, hey, you people, from now on, half of all of the United Pilots 
in their next batch of, of training, the five th will be of a particular race, but they're gonna fly based on merit in their private jet. Their pilots will not be subject to that. Mm -hmm. Their brain surgeons will not be subject to that. Mm -hmm. Their houses will not be subject to carbon offset trading. And so everybody's getting very angry and they're trying to find out they don't I, what I'm worried about is they're not they're not quite engaged yet uh, politically. They're not saying I have a chance to fight these people. They're more now saying these people are corrupt, they're evil and they want to destroy me, they want to destroy my family and they want to destroy what all of the generations before us have achieved. And I can't fight them, but I'm going to find enclave, almost as if mm. Hollywood's scenario of a nuclear holocaust where people afterwards try to band together. Mm. I think, though, that there is some hope in our state of California because we're 40 percent Mexican-American. Mm. And it was traditionally seen by the Democratic Party. If you patronize people who came here illegally and put them on entitlements and tell them that they're weak and helpless, uh, then they'll always be faithful to your dogma. But now we have an upper middle class and a middle class Hispanic and they're intermarrying, they're assimilating, and guess what? They're worried about the highest gasoline prices in the country, the highest electricity part, the second lowest schools in the nation. And they're getting very, very angry. And culturally, they don't like... Um, I just had breakfast this morning with a Hispanic police officer at 6 a.m. in the morning and they don't and I talked to other police officers they don't like this coastal sort of NPR wealthy white liberal telling them how good it is that they're paying 20 cents 27 cents a kilowatt for the turn on the lights or the air conditioning yeah so I, I think there'll be a reaction but as you intimated we don't know whether the reaction will be in time before these people have so consolidated power. I don't know if there's thermidors out there that are gonna all of a sudden rise up and appear one day and arrest Robespierre and line him up at the guillotine. We'll see. That's there, a metaphor, of course. Yeah, there are some, uh, just a few figures actually that one hears about, like for example, the um, governor in Florida, for example, and these sort of people who, they do give one hope. They, they seem very, very commonsensical and they seem very leader-like, actually. Um, and they'd certainly give one hope. But, but Victor, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us very, quite early, I think, in the morning still. Isn't it there? Uh, it's not too, it's 9.45 a.m. Oh, that's early. <laughs> but it's been, it's been lovely talking to you. Um, thank you very much. And um, we sh will hopefully uh, maybe speak again in, in, uh, in six months' time. I would very much enjoy that. But thank you very much for, for giving us your time. And thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Good. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for uh, so what you're saying is uh, this week. Um, join us next time. Thanks.